Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Um, If you are unfamiliar with the book of Job, it's really a book about suffering. Uh, and so that's why I say it's uh, jokingly some devotional reading. Uh, it's, it seems to be heavy in scope. Uh, it's not a short book. It's a long uh, book of several chapters, so it can take a while to get through. Uh, and actually, it's a bit unique in the biblical canon. Um, it's unique because uh, it's part of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, but none of the characters in the story are Hebrew. Uh, it is set in the land of Uz, which is, a far, uh, which is far away from Israel. And the story actually has no clear historical setting. Uh, and so you kind of have this, this sense in which the scripture and the story belongs to a certain people, uh, but their people aren't included in that story. Uh, it's set a long ways away from a land that they would call their own. And in fact, uh, it doesn't have any kind of clear historical setting. So it's, it's timeless in a sense. Uh, and I think that all of these uh, kind of, let's call them lack of details, are actually intentional on the part of the author. Uh, Because it's intentional because it makes this story universal in its scope. Uh, And in fact, I think that's probably what makes it unique, is that this story is so universal. Uh, We all know uh, that suffering is a part of life. And so the author um, wants to make this story both universal and timeless, uh, so that it can happen anywhere and at any time, uh, and the focus, I think, of the book is, is more on uh, the questions that it raises uh, rather than like the, those historical details, right? So it's sort of, you, you lack a lot of that kind of historical uh, setting and that lot of context so that this story can be universal in scope. Uh, and that's, that's, in fact, the author's intention. And so uh, when we do a series on Job, which is, uh, will be today in the next three weeks, so a four-week series on Job, uh, and with 40 chapters, 42, uh, it would be hard to say, okay, this week we're going to do Job chapters 1 through 10, right? And then 11 through 20. Uh, so we're not going to look at that, chrono- we're not going to look at Job chronologically in that way, but rather each uh, week of the series will focus on a different theme that arises out of the book. Uh, we'll address a question, some of the key questions that it raises. Uh, and so it's a little bit different. Typically when we do series, we just kind of walk through the book, and this will be a little bit different. Um, now before I read what I want uh, to read this morning as our passage, uh, I want to give you just kind of orient you to the structure of the book. So if you're unfamiliar with Job, uh, this is how the book of Job is structured. Uh, in, in chapters 1 and 2, we get sort of a narrative uh, that sets the scene uh, for the story, uh, and actually gives us almost the whole story uh, in narrative form, in just the first two chapters. Uh, what we were introduced to Job, we have this kind of courtroom scene that we'll look at uh, this morning, uh, and then we're introduced actually to Job's suffering, and we learn the nature of his suffering. And then the big bulk of the book, chapters 3 through 37, uh, are made up of conversations between Job and his friends. And, and so you have Job, who's experienced this un, unimaginable suffering, uh, and his friends try to offer an explanation for the suffering, and then Job offers a response. And so you have three friends, uh, and you have a response from Job. So the, the structure is friend number one, 
Gives an gives a explanation, Job responds. Friend number two, explanation, Job responds. Friend number three, explanation, Job responds, times three. So you have 18 speeches that are all done in uh, pretty eloquent, sophisticated Hebrew poetry. Uh, and that makes up the big bulk of the book, is, is this kind of like, uh, this back and forth uh, of, of trying to explain why has this suffering happened to Job. Uh, and that's where we're going to dive into next week. Uh, and then God's, God's response then uh, is in chapters 38 through 41, in which God provides perspective. Uh, and what's interesting about the book of Job is that for as much as it raises questions, it never actually directly answers those questions. Okay? So if you're looking for uh, the answer to suffering over the next four weeks, uh, I hate to disappoint you. <laughs> uh, but we will come into, but we will learn some really important and profound truths, uh, I think, from this book. So I'm really excited about this series. Uh, and then chapter 42, you have the end of the narrative. So the narrative sections of Job are actually just chapters 1 and 2 and 42. Those are the only books that read like a story and a narrative. The rest of it is essentially Hebrew poetry that you're reading uh, in the form of like call and response or, or uh, explanation and then um, response. So, so let's look at uh, Job chapter 1, and I want to read verses 6 through 12 this morning. And this morning I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, typically kind of float between the NIV and the NRSV, uh, but for this series will be mostly uh, in the New Living Translation. And the reason is because when you're reading Hebrew poetry, uh, the NLT is one of the more readable translations, and so it just, it just feels uh, more, uh, it has a higher degree of readability uh, and then relatability. So that's, what, that's why we're in this uh, version of the scriptures. So uh, Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that is going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all of the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God, for you have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything that he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take everything he has away, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, in the first few verses of Job, which we didn't read, we're simply introduced to Job. We learn that he's a man of great wealth. Uh, we, we learn that he's a man of integrity. Uh, that he is, in fact, blameless. And, and then, when, in our portion, beginning in verse 6, uh, Satan enters the story. Uh, and isn't, isn't it true that in all of our stories, everything is hunky-dory until it isn't, right? Like, everything is going great until it's not. Uh, and so there's the, already there's like this really high degree of relatability to this story. So in verse 6, Satan enters the story. Now, real quickly, we've come to assume that Satan is, is like the devil's Christian name, right? 
but there's something going on here that I think is important to recognize because the, it's not quite as simple as Satan is just the devil's Christian name. Uh, and in fact, I like what this translation does because uh, the Hebrew there is definite article ha and then satan, which literally means the accuser. Uh, and so, so it's not necessarily this as much of a proper name as we've come to assume, but, but rather it's this, the accuser enters the story, one who gives or accusation or one who accuses. And the accusation is this, and this is really important, right? The accuser enters in, and what does an accuser do but accuse? And so the accusation is this, Job worships and loves God for what he gets out of it. That's the accusation. Job only loves you and Job only worships you because he gets something out of it. He does it for your protection. He does it for your blessing. He does it because of the wealth that you provide. And so Job's worship, this is the accusation, Job's worship is quid pro quo. Maybe you've heard that phrase a lot uh, recently, but here's, it's a Latin phrase that means this for that. And the, the accusation from the accuser is that Job's worship is quid pro quo. He's only doing it because of what he gets out of it. In other words, the, the accuser is revealing a particular theology, a particular view of both God and the world, right? Quid pro quo, this for that. People only worship God for what is in it for them. And in fact, this is one of the key questions that the book of Job addresses. Uh, is, in fact, is this, in fact, how God runs the world? Is God's justice essentially worship God, love him, and get things in return? This is one of the key questions. Is, 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 is this, in fact, how the world runs? Is the accuser right? Okay? Uh, and so a wager is set up to answer that question. Does Job worship God for nothing, or does Job worship God, or does Job worship God quid pro quo? And the only way to tell is for Job to no longer have the blessings that he enjoys. And so what we learn, by the end of the second chapter of Job, uh, Job experiences three waves of disaster. The first wave is Job loses all of his wealth. And so uh, wealth in this agrarian culture comes in the form of livestock and land and all of these things. Uh, and we find that all of those things are stripped away from Job. So you have a man who's living in great wealth who is brought into enormous poverty, right? And that in itself would be crushing, right? I mean, put yourself in the shoes of Job and recognize you go from, you go from wealth to living in poverty. This is a, this is a crushing blow. In the second wave, though, Job loses in one fell swoop uh, all of his children, of which he has 10. So in a great wind, tornado maybe, all 10 of his children die. So you have a man who went from great wealth into poverty, who might be able to say, at least I have my family, to which that is no longer true. And then in the third wave, what we learn is that he has a loss of health. He's inflicted with terrible disease. So you have three movements of tragedy in a very quick kind of snap narrative. You have loss of wealth, loss of children, and loss of health. All trying to like kind of answer the question, what is the nature of worship? 
Do we worship God simply because of what we get out of it? Now, if we're listening carefully to this opening narrative, we're actually pointed to an important truth. And that is that authentic worship has no utilitarian value. Authentic worship has no practical application. We don't worship to get something. We don't worship to keep someone happy. In fact, we don't worship to manipulate divine behavior. But simply, worship is this. Worship is acknowledging worth and then pouring out praise based on that worth. That's what worship is. Okay, so when we think about worship through song, when we think about worship as a lifestyle, kind of outside of these four walls, worship is recognizing the worth of God and then, and then celebrating that worth of God and, and praising him based on it. Okay? And so it, it points us to this, this, this kind of this wager that is set up, if we're listening carefully, kind of points us to the authentic nature of worship. You might call worship a holy waste. <laughs> There's no practical application to it. There's no... Uh, utilitarian value. Now, again, remember that the book of Job is universal in its scope, so it's going to ask the key question, not just about Job's life. Is Job worshiping quid pro quo? But it's actually going to ask a more universal and important question, and that is, uh, that, that does the world operate according to quid pro quo? Do, do we worship God collectively just because of what we get out of it, right? And this is an important question, and in fact, it's a question that humanity continues to struggle with to this day. And so after Job experiences this the unbelievable loss in chapters 1 and 2, he begins to question if his life is even worth living. So that by the time you get to Job chapter 3, you have one of the most bitter lamentations in all of Scripture, where Job poetically loathes the day of his birth and wishes that it had never happened. He, he in fact, says, I wish I was never born. There's one line in there that says, I wish I was born dead. Okay, it's, if you read it, it's one of the most bitter lamentations in all of Scripture. And he essentially says that if this is what life is like, it is better to have never lived at all. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I wonder how many of us have been in a, in a season of suffering so much that we were brought to that point where we would say, where we would question the worth of existing at all. Is it even worth it? And essentially Job's conclusion, at least in chapter three, is that existence has brought too much pain to have been worth it at all. And, and in this section of Job, you find that it's reminiscent of the Psalms in its bitter honesty before God. And, and for that, I love this section too, uh, because it reminds us of an important truth as well that we can be honest before God. That, that God can, can handle our honesty, that he can handle our lament, and dare I say that we, we can even, God can even handle our complaint, right? And so what we find is, this is, this is compelling, that, that at the end of chapter three, the, the narrative says that in all of this, Job did not blame God, okay? So Job is not blaming God, but Job is certainly complaining against God. He's certainly letting God know exactly what he thinks. And he is lamenting even the day of his birth and saying, I wish I had never even existed. And it's interesting, too, because you have sort of this, this 
raw honesty that's present in the book of Job, uh, particularly in chapter three, but certainly throughout. Uh, and then you also have the honesty of the Psalms, uh, the, the bitter lamentations of some of the Psalms. Um, and then you have a whole book named Lamentations, right, in the Old Testament. Uh, but you also have the book of Proverbs. That in book, the book of Proverbs, chapter 12, verse 21, says, no harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are full of misery. And if we're really listening, we, we might be compelled to say, well, which one is it? <laughs> is it Proverbs 12, 21, or is it Lamentations and the Sum of the Psalms in the book of Job? Which one, in fact, is it? And here's, here's what I would want to say. In, in some ways, the book of Job is a counter-narrative to the book of Proverbs. Interesting, isn't it? it, it the book of Job is in some ways like this, this counter-narrative, right? So you have Proverbs chapter 12, verse 21, no harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are full of misery. And as a general principle, I would say, okay, yes, and amen. In fact, Jesus might say something similar where he says, "What well, you reap what you sow. Like those who sow destruction reap destruction. Those who sow righteousness sow righteousness, right? And, and, and so you have this kind of like you, you, you get what you have coming to you or that you have natural consequences of your uh, actions. But at the same time, we can't set that up as sort of this universal way in which the universe works, in which the world works. Uh, in fact, the message of much of Proverbs seems to be, fear God, do what is right, and you'll have a good life. To which generally, as a, as a general principle, I would say yes and amen. However, we cannot read, and, and lots of people make this mistake, we cannot read Proverbs as an ironclad promise. The book of Proverbs is not set up to be read as promises of God. One of the most misunderstood verses in all of Proverbs is raise up a child in the way they should go so when they're old they will not depart from it. Right? And you have parents who kind of raise their kids in the church and maybe they're prodigals now and you, and you have, but I did this, I did this, and so God is going to bring them back. He has promised that. But if you talk to some folks, you recognize that maybe they never do. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. And so the book of Proverbs is not these ironclad promises, but rather a description of what is generally true. And what Job does is kind of provide this, this reality check to the book of Proverbs, right? Can I, some of you are like nervous about the way in which I'm talking about scripture, but this is, this is just, this is how it is, right? I mean, if we're being honest about life, this is how it is. And Job kind of provides this reality check, this counter narrative to the book of Proverbs. Because here's what happens. If you take Proverbs 12.21 in particular, no harm befalls the righteous, uh, and you take that as an ironclad promise, uh, what do you do if something happens? You, you have, your theology, if you take Proverbs as an ironclad promise, your theology then has to go sniffing around for hidden sin. Because no harm befalls the righteous, so you must not be righteous, right? And so your theology dictates that you go sniffing around for hidden sin. In fact, in chapter 4, the friends of Job begin to try and find explanation. And what we find is that they actually share the theology of the accuser. 
They see life with God as quid pro quo, and they equate this with God's justice. So for Job's friends, God's justice is this. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. And that, essentially, is their theological system for making sense of the world. That's what we learn from Job's friends. Their theology, their perspective of the world, their view of God's justice, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. So if bad things happen to you, then you must be bad. Right? Now, they are genuine friends of Job, but they are afraid that something like Job's suffering might also happen to them. Have you ever had a friend experience something terrible and unexplainable? And part of you, like a big part of you, feels compassion for their situation, but there's this other part of you that is afraid that it could also happen to you. And so you want to try to prevent it from happening to you, and so you try to do all these things and organize all that, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna eat that, I'm not gonna do that, I'm not gonna participate in that thing, I'm not gonna make those kinds of friends. Like, you, you kinda like start to like shelter your life to kinda keep you from experiencing whatever suffering those people uh, experienced, right? So you have this compassion, but you also kinda start looking for reasons of why that happened to them, and then insulate your own life from that, And here's what happens. Job's friends can't handle the idea that it could also happen to them, so they must hold to a system of belief that makes it impossible for it to happen to them. And they're motivated by fear. They're doing this because of fear. And so when something bad happens to someone who is good, then the quid pro quo system is threatened. Did you hear that? When something bad happens to someone who is good, then the theological system of you get what you deserve, the good people get good things, bad people get bad things, that, is, that whole system of belief, that whole theology is threatened when you see that something bad has happened to someone who is good. And at that point, you have two options. Number one, number one is you could abandon the system and say there's something wrong with the system. There's something wrong with this theological view of the world. Or number two is you could blame the one who has tragedy befall them because they clearly have done something to deserve it. Most people, most people will go with with option number two. Because if you don't, then you'll be forced to admit that what happened to them could also happen to you. If the world is not run according to the quid pro quo, then that leaves you vulnerable to suffering that cannot be explained. And so we choose instead to blame the victim. And this is precisely what Job's friends do, and we'll look at that actually in detail next week. So most of the book of Job is his friends accusing him and Job maintaining his innocence. That's the big bulk of the book of Job. Job's friends accusing Job and then Job maintaining his innocence. That's essentially what you get in chapters 3 through 37. (laughs) We do this most when it comes to like health and disease. 
So, uh, I think all of us in this room have been touched uh, by cancer in some way, right? Uh, either by us having it, a family member, a friend. It's one of those like, things that is so ubiquitous to culture that it, it's, it's universal in, in scope. All of us have been touched by it in some way. Um, I, ha- I have done this. I would imagine that you have done this. I've certainly heard other people do this. That when someone faces a cancer diagnosis, you begin to kind of look at their life and try to think about what was it that caused the cancer, and I'm going to avoid that, right? So it's like, now, you know, some things we know cause cancer, right? And we can avoid those things. But, but largely, we have no idea why cancer produces itself in our bodies, uh, outside of just a few things that we know to be cancer-causing, everything else is just like, I ate a healthy diet, I was exercising, I did this, and, and then I got it. And so, but isn't it true, I don't want to use that as an illustration to say, isn't it true that when someone who is avoiding the known causes and yet still gets it, we, we still want to try to identify what was it so that I can avoid that? And that, to me, is a picture of what we tend to do, generally speaking, is we always are wanting to, to, in order to protect and insulate ourselves, and and we end up kind of blaming and saying, oh, well, that person did that. They ate that, so that's what they got. Quid pro quo. Get what you deserve. And I, I don't want to get into next week too much, but the book of Job in the first two chapters is very clear about one thing. And that is that Job is blameless and a man of integrity. And the real challenge for the reader of Job is can we hold on to that? And can we believe that all the way through? Or will we eventually be seduced into blaming Job? That's the real challenge. It's a profound book when we learn to read it correctly. And so here's here's the anecdotal truth from Job and from life. Apparently, really bad things sometimes happen to really good people right? Like the anecdotal truth of of Job is that sometimes really bad things happen to really good people. And so this morning, I want to affirm in front of you that I believe that God is nothing but pure light and goodness and love. That all other attributes of God are intimately connected to love. That anything that we would attribute to God is always an expression of his core characteristic, which is love. I affirm also that God is all-powerful. And by all-powerful, I mean fully capable. God is fully capable. So I affirm that God is love and goodness, pure light. 
I affirm that God is fully capable. And yet the reality seems to be that we live in a world where babies sometimes get brain cancer, children are abused, poverty is real, and we send our sons and daughters off to wars. And so, as a people of God, we are invited to sit with this mystery. To try our best to hold on to the tension. And as we're holding on to that tension, God will actually speak in, speak into that tension. He will weigh in, but I don't want to get there yet, But because it's, it's toward the end of the book of Job. God will weigh in on the, on the mystery and the tension. He will provide perspective, but not answers. But I suppose my question for us this morning is, can we actually learn to sit with the mystery that apparently bad things can happen to really good people? Because if, if I can't, if I, become un, if I become too uncomfortable with sitting in that mystery, one of two things will happen. One is, I will try to defend God. And in trying to defend God, there's a pretty good chance I will end up misspeaking about God. I will say something about God that isn't quite right. Uh, which I think is what the friends do. The other option is, if I, if I become too uncomfortable with sitting in the mystery, I, I might also try to explain the suffering. I will try to seek clear and definitive answers as to why you or me or the, my friend or my family is suffering. But in trying to explain the suffering, there's a good chance that I will end up blaming innocent people. So on one hand, I might misspeak about God. On the other hand, I might end up blaming those who are innocent. And so I'm invited to just sit in the mystery and recognize that I do not have all the answers. And recognize that the world and the universe is a complex place, and it simply cannot be reduced down to simple platitudes. Yeah? Job, as you read his responses to the friends, seems to bounce back and forth between tremendous faith and utter doubt. <laughs> you read Job and, and you'll think, man, this guy is all over the map, kind of emotionally, um, to which anyone in the season of suffering would say amen, right? To which anyone who is suffering might say that's exactly what being in a season of suffering is like. There are moments and glimpses of absolute faith and confidence in the capability of God, that God is going to redeem all things, and, you, and then yet you have moments of like utter doubt, and you, you might join in the bitter lamentation that existence is not even worth it. And that's exactly what you find in Job. Job is all over the place in his responses. But one of his greatest moments of faith is in Job chapter 19, verse 25. Job 19, verse 25. 
But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. (laughs) In one of the greatest moments of faith, Job says in one of his responses, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. This is Job's greatest moment of faith. It's a recognition, this, this confession of a redeemer is a recognition that, for Job that, that still in the purposes of God, all things will be made new. All things will be put back to right. But here's perspective that we have that Job did not have. That you and I have a name for that redeemer. Amen? that we know that the Redeemer of which Job speaks of is fully embodied in the person of Jesus Christ who suffers with us. What Jesus shows us, what the life of Jesus shows us, and the great truth that we celebrate at Christmas is that God is not aloof to our suffering, but God in Christ enters into suffering with us. That God in Christ suffers with us. That God, from his position in heaven, did not exempt himself from suffering, but rather chose to enter it into us, into suffering with us. To which I would say, in that movement of incarnation, where God is sitting in his position of heaven and yet chooses to be incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ, that he might suffer with us, I would say, that is a God of tremendous worth. And in response, I offer my worship. But there's something unique about the suffering of Jesus. It isn't just that he suffers with us. And there's something to be said about a God who would choose to suffer with us, right? Who would enter into the human condition and, and become vulnerable to our blame and accusation and our sin. In fact, theologians are doing really good work now where we tended throughout history have always referred to God as all-powerful. There's movement now to begin at least putting into the vernacular of the church that God is also all-vulnerable. That if we only talk about the power of God, we're missing the great truth of the incarnation, which is God chooses to be vulnerable. So we say to God, all vulnerable God, who has so loved us and suffered with us. But there's this unique part about the suffering of Jesus. He doesn't just suffer with us, although that is something. It's that his suffering provides healing for us. There's this sense, this truth in which we are not alone in our suffering, but because of the suffering of Jesus Christ, we might also be healed. The Apostle Peter will echo the voice of the prophets and say, by his wounds we are healed. Pastor, author, Brian Zond says this, Jesus' solidarity with suffering humanity becomes a wellspring of divine healing. Jesus' solidarity 
with suffering becomes a wellspring of divine healing. And so, the question, one of the key questions, one of the accusations of the accuser is that Job and perhaps the people of God only worship God for what they get out of it. For some people, that might be true. It may be true that our motivations to worship and offer time on our weekends and maybe do devotions throughout the week are simply only to win God's favor, to which I would say God's favor is already upon you. For he has entered the human condition, suffered with us, and provided a wellspring of divine healing that we need not earn God's favor, that God in his love enters the human condition with us. And so I would encourage us to be motivated today to, to see worship, to first of all see the worth of God, to, to see the nature of this God, who has suffered with us in Christ, and then in response offer our worship. Uh, With no practical application, with no utilitarian value, with not trying to manipulate divine action, trying to earn God's favor, trying to get him to do something on our behalf, but rather simply to offer him our praise and our thanks. For in Christ he has suffered with us and offers a wellspring of divine healing. Amen? Well, the book of Job uh, only gets better from here. <laughs> like, like next week, we turn it up to 11 uh, in terms of just like how compelling this story is, especially as next week we'll look at uh, in detail uh, chapters 3 through 37 and, and looking at this call and response, this accusation and response. Uh, from Job and his friends. So we'll get to know the friends. I've referred to them in general this morning. I've done that purposely uh, so that I didn't cross too much material over weeks one and week two. Um, But uh, man, come next week and maybe invite some friends to join you because suffering is a universal part of the human condition. And I think the book of Job has some really important things to say to us about it. So, Let me say a word of prayer and then I'll invite us to the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, we recognize your worth today. It is our desire to get a clearer picture of your character. And we are struck, Lord, by the mystery that you would choose to become flesh and live among us, to suffer with us. And we also live, Lord, with the confession of faith that it is through your suffering that we find healing for our lives individually, for our lives corporately together, 
Um, and so, God, I pray that, that, in fact, we would find today a wellspring of healing for whatever we may be facing. But, God, would you also give us the, the patience, uh, the sense of, of depth of heart and mind to sit with the mystery that sometimes really bad things happen to really good people. And we might be tempted to explain that away. We might be tempted to provide easy answers. We might be tempted by, with empty platitudes. But God, would you just give us a depth of heart and mind that we wouldn't be seduced into those kind of easy answers, but rather God would, would sit in the mystery and maintain the confession that you are good and all capable. And so, Lord, help us um, in these things. And now, be with us as we come to the table. May we experience your presence here. Uh, Meet each one of us precisely where we're at, that we might receive from you um, precisely the the nourishment that we need today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.